And I remember when she told me she's leaving and she can't do this. And she had said that before, but I knew this time she really, really meant it. And I remember breaking down and crying in front of my children and telling them that I failed them again and that I'm sorry. Your life is going to change again. Your home is going to change again. And it's my fault. And they had suffered change because of me many times. Homes, stepmoms. And my oldest son, who doesn't, he's, he's not a wordsmith. He's not one that's going to, you know, wax poetically about anything. Comes up and I'm crying and they come up and they both hug me. And the older one says, Dad, I know you've made mistakes but I wouldn't have you any other way. And it's everything I needed at that time. You know, it was, uh, and it still brings tears, tears to my eyes now. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M., I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride, take what you want, and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. So that was Mr. Charlie L's voice that you heard at the beginning of this episode today. Mr. Charlie has been sober since December 6th of 2014. And uh, one of the main reasons I wanted to have Charlie on the podcast is because he is actually a podcaster himself. Uh, Not only does he podcast, he does recovery podcasts. So we talk about that experience a little bit, but I mainly wanted to focus on Charlie's story and his recovery within Alcoholics Anonymous. And you will notice during during the episode that he talks about how his mom died when he was 11 years old of cancer. Now that mom meant everything to their family. She was the glue that held it together. And somebody came up to him at their at his mother's wake and said, I guess God just saw it fit to take your mother early. And as you can imagine, that did not go over well with Charlie. And at that point, him and God went separate ways. And as he said, it was a great setup or an environment. It, it left a, what he said, a quote, a perfect vacuum for drugs and alcohol to come into the picture. We're going to talk about the first time Charlie ever uh, drank. And uh, um, there were two pieces to this that I caught. Number one, that somebody had to put him into a dog kennel to restrain him. And the other piece was that uh, he actually died and came back to life. So I was more interested in the dog kennel part. (laughs) Uh, He was actually uh, uh, more focused on the dying and coming back to life. Uh, But anyway, you'll enjoy that story. I'm glad he made it through. I'll put it that way. Um, Alcohol was not a problem for Charlie. In fact, it was a solution after he found it. Now, one of the things Charlie's going to reference here is that how many times he actually went in and out of rehabilitation, rehab. uh, And he wanted to become what he referred to as a, quote, treatment ninja, unquote. And you'll see what he means by that. Uh, And uh, it's not something you really want to aspire to be. Uh, He also said at one point, and I had never heard this term before, that he managed to stay sober on fellowship and wall steps. Uh, He'll explain what that means. There was another piece where we discussed the two truths that he had found uh, when he kind of was uh, coming to his senses, if you will. And the two truths were, 
I cannot control my alcoholism, and I do not sober well. Um, one other part that I enjoyed, he said at one point, uh, he said to his wife, he's going to quit for 30 days and he was able to do it, but he did it on what he called resentments and Marlboros. Now that sounds like a really strong dry drunk right there. Toward the end, we're going to talk about how he figured out and what really rang with him Uh, What he read in the book was, is that our job is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to the God of our understanding and to the people around us. So you're going to enjoy Charlie. Um, See you soon. Bye-bye. Okay, everybody. So we're sitting here with Mr. Charlie L. up in the great state of Minnesota. What part of Minnesota are you in, Charlie? We're just outside of St. Paul, Minnesota. Okay. So Charlie and I, um, basically, uh, Charlie is a fellow recovery slash sobriety podcaster. And so I've been looking more forward, and this is a little bit more special to me, just to have somebody on this program that does basically the same thing I do. Now, I, I will say the same thing I do, but Charlie is way ahead of me, if you will. Uh, He's got, I don't know, 125, 130 or so episodes recorded. Uh, I don't know how long exactly you've been doing this, but I know it's at least twice as long as I have. But doing it a few years, uh, uh, John, and it's been an absolute uh, blast. And yet we're going to sit down and record our 108th episode tomorrow. So uh, it's been quite the journey. That's great. That's great. So um, I wanted to get Charlie on the podcast. And basically, you know, I, I listened to his podcast, by the way, the name of the podcast, and we'll, we'll talk more in detail about this is called The Way Out Podcast. In fact, why don't we just talk about it right now, since I brought it up, because I am assuming, and I've never asked you, but The Way Out, I'm assuming that's because the second title of the big book at one point was called The Way Out. How did you come up with the title for The Way Out Podcast? John, you're spot on, brother. You're spot on. I remember reading a lot about the big book and and how that uh, book Alcoholics Anonymous came to be and the working title of that book for uh, for a long time was called was The Way Out until they discovered that there was another book called The Way Out. So they had to pivot, and they pivoted to uh, naming it simply Alcoholics Anonymous. But uh, uh, so it's an homage to the uh, the working title of uh, what's now referred to as the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's great. So I listened to the Way Out podcast, which is a, a very good podcast. I recommend people go find it, download it. Uh, in fact, uh, I'll put a, a link to it in the show notes uh, for this particular program. If you just pause your uh, uh, podcast app, whatever you're listening to this on, do that while you're not driving, by the way. We want to be safety first. Well, you can go to, I'll put Charlie's uh, website in the uh, show notes. But so I listen to the Way Out podcast, and y- you know, you always pick up bits and pieces of somebody's, you know, both their personality uh, and their story when listening to something like their podcast, but you don't get the whole thing. So I wanted Charlie to come on this podcast, Sober Speak, and talk about his journey uh, and what got him from point A to point B. So this is all about you, Charlie. I know you're generally interviewing other people, but today we're going to turn the tables on you a little bit and let you uh, talk about yourself at length. So where do we start? So let's go back. Where do you, I mean, you tell me, where do you want to start? Give me a little snapshot of Charlie, where you were before you got into the program. Obviously, we're going to kind of go into, you know, what you were like, what happened and what you were like now, but kind of go into the what you were like part of it to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. And just an honor to be on Silver Speak and to be able to share some some experience, strength and hope and, you know, really just want to um uh you know be uh, uh be a channel today uh, as much as i can so that's my goal is to be of maximum service to the god of my understanding and the people around me on a daily basis and uh, uh today that's how that, that today that's what this looks like right is uh being on a, 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 on 
uh, your podcast and uh, sharing with your audience. So, uh, you know, uh, I always believed, John, that a big addict and alcoholic switches and they are bound to get tripped at some point. Okay. Um, and, uh, and it's, my story starts pretty early. I, uh, my mom died when I was 11 years old of cancer. And, uh, I always remember feeling very, um, full of fear, full of, uh, anxiety, full of, um, um, uh, a lot of emotions that I didn't know how to deal with. And um, there was a period of time in there where you know, I was very lost. Uh, our whole world got turned upside down when I was 11 o'clock. I didn't just lose my mom. I lost everything. I lost everything that I knew to be true. Everything that I knew that was um, that represented safety and security in my world was ripped away from me when my mom uh, passed away. And, you know, I remember a very fateful um, uh, comment somebody made to me while I was at my own mother's wake. Uh, they, they, they came up to me, and multiple people had come up to me and said this, but somebody come up to me and said, I guess God just saw fit to take your mom early. And I remember thinking, what kind of God would do that? What kind of God would take their mother away from their children? And I made a very fateful decision that very day the day of the wake of my own mother, that I did not want a God like that in my life. I did not want that God in my life. A God that would do that. A God that would take a mother. And my mother did everything for us. She was that kind of mom. She was our social engineer. She was our cook. She was our spiritual leader. She was our uh, teacher. She was everything to us. Right. And in, in, in my mind at that point, God took her from us. And I wanted no part of a God that would do that. And so I made that decision that I'm going to do this on my own now. That that I don't want that God, that God can go uh, take a hike. <sighs> and in fact, I probably don't need people really. Either, I mean, I, I, I'm going to try to navigate this life as much as I can on my own. Because people die and people leave. And so it, it started this process of isolation. It started this process of isolation from the God of my understanding. It started this process of isolation really from people and insulating myself from people. And it created a perfect vacuum for drugs and alcohol to enter into my life. And they entered in my life pretty early. And I remember the first time I drank, I remember that very vividly. I remember how I felt. I remember how alcohol made me feel. And it made me feel like I thought I should feel. It made me feel like I always wanted to feel. It made me feel good enough. It made me feel powerful. It made me feel confident. It, re it, it, it removed all of the cares that I had in the world, and I felt free. I was able to talk to girls and stand up to guys. And the first time I drank, I got so drunk that I stopped breathing. They stuck me in a dog kennel because I was out of control and I stopped breathing. And they checked on me a little while later and my lips were blue and my chest was not rising and falling because I was no longer taking in oxygen. I was dying. I didn't know that because I was blacked out. And they were able to revive me. I don't know how they were able to revive me because they didn't call any paramedics, but my best friend was able to revive me somehow. And I don't remember any of that. But what I do remember is after that, 
not thinking, boy, I better not do that again. I don't remember thinking that. I remember thinking, that was amazing. I remember thinking, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a legend now. I mean, there might be quarterbacks of the football team. Okay? There might be those. There might be heads of the debate club. But I died <laughs> and came back to life. I am a legend. <laughs> and I really felt that way. And I really used that for a lot of different things that I really shouldn't have been using it for, but I did. Uh, and so that's how, that's how it started for me. And by the way, I just, uh, I've uh, heard, uh, I've heard a lot of stories before and I've heard of people dying before, but I've never heard of somebody getting put in a dog kennel. So congratulations. <laughs> They had to contain me, brother. They had to contain <laughs> me somehow. I was out of control. <laughs> and how analogous that was to the rest of my drinking and using career, really, at that point, um, is that I was completely out of control. But it didn't matter because I liked the way it, uh, that felt. Alcohol was not a problem for me. Alcohol was a solution. You know, and I, and I did drugs, but alcohol was my first love. And that was my drug of choice throughout my active addiction and alcoholism for sure was, was alcohol. Uh, and I went to treatment when I was 16 for the first time because uh, my folks had discovered that, uh, uh, you know, I was partying regularly and regularly and I was out of control, and I wasn't, you know, the, all the telltale signs of um, of a kid that was uh, definitely out of control. And Go, so going down I had, the wrong track. Yeah, absolutely. And so they they had they they arranged for treatment. It was a thirty day outpatient adolescent program. I lied like heck to stay out of inpatient and it worked. So I got the outpatient 30 day spin dry and yeah, I learned very, very, very quickly what they wanted to hear from me. And so I, my, my goal was to become the treatment ninja. And, <laughs> and what is a treatment ninja? A treatment ninja, John, I'm glad you asked is somebody who can wax poetically about recovery and about the 12 steps, but not actually do any work <laughs> or take any meaningful action that might actually lead to some sort of sustaining and meaningful recovery. <laughs> That's, that was my goal. I had actually no intention of staying sober. See, I had just found this solution not that long ago, and you, you, want, me to, you want me to willingly give it up See, see, you clearly misunderstand how well this is working for me. <laughs> you clearly have no idea how well this works for me. So, as, as I, so did you have other, tell me, tell me about your family. So you mentioned your mom, obviously she had passed. Do you have a dad? Do you have brothers and sisters? How were they reacting to this? Yeah, so I had a dad and my dad was um, doing everything that he could just to stay afloat, right? Um, three boys, all teenagers. I had an older brother and a younger brother. We were all teenagers by this time. And uh, not only were we eating about eating him out of house and home uh, at that particular moment, and he was up to his eyeballs in debt, just trying to ensure that he hung on to the house and kept clothes and, on our back and food on the table. Uh, but we were, uh, you know, my, my younger brother and I were out of control, absolutely out of control. And my younger brother was a part of your two. He was much more defiant than I was, probably didn't use like I did and drank like I did. And was a little bit more tempered from that perspective, a little bit more defiant just behaviorally. But um, so he had his hands full. Uh, with my brother, who you know was uh, uh, was defiant and um, having his own problems and causing 
problems. Uh, and then there was me who was um, uh, definitely having um, uh, um, many problems controlling the amount and frequency of my use, whether it was drugs or alcohol at the time. So um, couldn't stay, couldn't follow rules, whether they were at home or whatnot. So, um, yeah, my dad had had his hands full. He had just gotten remarried to my stepmom, who's a saint, an absolute 100% saint. I cannot believe that woman put up with what she had to put up with so early in meeting my dad because, boy... I don't know if I would have want to have anything to do with any of that, but she was just a saint and um, she really supported my dad in a time when he really needed it. And, uh, and, and really looking back meant a lot to me personally so much. And I've told, I've had the opportunity to really tell her that that in recovery, how much she's meant to me and, and, and st- continues to mean to me. But yeah, so that's the, 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 the family dynamic, you know, and, uh, um, uh, the idea was that you're going to go to treatment and you're going to kind of straighten things out and, you know, sort of set the set the path straight again. Again, they didn't account for the fact that, uh, you know, I, I really believed at that time that I had found my solution and that I wasn't interested in anybody else's solution. I had found mine and I wasn't about to give it up. So um, 30 days gets done and uh, we're passing around the medallion as they do in treatment center uh, all across this fine, uh, this fine country. And the group is passing the coin along and they're saying, you know, Charlie, if you know, if I just had a shred of the wisdom that you had, I'd, I'd just be so fortunate. You, you're going to be, you're going to, you're going to be sober. Uh, I know for, for the rest of you and you're, all this stuff, right? Anyway, the head treatment counselor who I didn't even think was listening. I had no idea this woman was even paying attention. Usurps the circle, grabs the medallion, looks at me in the eyes and says, you're lying to yourself. You're lying to this group. You will use and drink again. There's my dog. You will use and drink again, and it will probably kill you. And she drops the medallion and walks out. And everybody's like, what, what a bitch, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, I know, I know. But she was right. And she saw right through me. She saw right through me. What is your sobriety date right now? It's a great question. So my sobriety date is December 6, 2014, by the grace of the God of my understandings. So. And so when was this treatment center? What year were you in this treatment center when this lady was talking to you? 1997. Well, so she knew what she was talking about, huh? She absolutely did. Okay, so you get out of there. Uh, you're, you are a treatment ninja uh, certified, and uh, you're pulling the wool over everybody's eyes. So take me between 1997 and 2014. Yeah, great. So uh, I spent another year. I went right back out, I, you know, and began to use and drink even heavier, faster, more furious, right? Because whatever I was trying to solve inside of myself uh, became harder and harder to solve with drugs and alcohol, but it wasn't for lack of effort. That's for sure. Because I gave it everything I got, uh, through those years. I went back to AA, uh, for another year and stayed sober on fellowship and wall steps. Uh, and again, um, waxed poetically about those steps that I had no intention of working. And I remember very, very vividly that stint thinking Two distinct thoughts. Number one, I well, three. Number one, I've got them all fooled. Okay? Uh, number two, and I don't think I did, by the way, looking back, but I thought I did at the time. Number two, I'm not really like you people. Right? I might have alcoholic-like tendencies. I might have addict-like tendencies, but I'm not really like you people. Okay? And number three, being kind of resentful that y'all could get it and I couldn't. 
So I've never heard that term before. You said you were staying sober on fellowship and wall steps. Does yeah. that mean? Does that mean you're just looking at them on the wall and you're not really doing them? So That's correct. That is hundred percent correct. <laughs> My knowledge of the the twelve steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, John, before getting sober in, on December six, two thousand and fourteen, and actually working the program, was limited to reading the steps off of the wall. And then extrapolating whatever bullshit <laughs> I could come up with extemporaneously, you know. <laughs> and I could tell you have a way with language, which is good. Uh, but my guess is that was a, an impediment to keeping you sober. So you were just trying to uh, do your ninja stuff. We call that a barrier to recovery. <laughs> Yeah, that is a barrier for sure. <laughs> it's absolutely a barrier for me, John. And so I relapsed again, and I relapsed for a very long time, and I I didn't get sober again until 2014. And in I through that time, between about 2002 and 2014, okay, about 12 years, through that time, I would run into two truths. The first truth I would run into was that I can't control my alcoholism. And that would manifest itself in a DWI, a lost marriage, all sorts of consequences. And it would also manifest itself in benders that I would go on and not realize how I got home not realize where my car was, not realize any of that. And when I would have those moments of clarity where I would run into the truth, the undeniable truth that I cannot control this, Eileen would come back into my brain. That's the voice that would come back when I was, when I was headlong faced with the truth of my disease. You're lying to yourself, you're lying to this group, you're going to use and drink again, and it's probably going to kill you, right? And then the other truth that I would alternately run into is I don't sober well, right? What does that mean? This means that without a solution, I can't stay sober and happy. So I would attempt these bouts of sobriety without any solution. I would just you know, grunt and groan and, you know, uh, try hard. Um, and I would realize I can't, I can't sustain sobriety because life becomes unbearable. And that was the other truth that I would run into was that life is unbearable sober, but I can't manage my drinking. And I would run into these alternate truths throughout this, these, this 12 years. And then there would be windows when I would run into these truths where I could capitalize on that self-honesty, but then those windows would vanish because I was able to build up the lie again and the rationalization again and convince myself, no, you really can manage this. You really can keep this in your life. Right. And it came to a head when I was about 36 years, 35 years old, on my third marriage. And my wife at the time looks at me and she says, we've been married for over a year and you drink every day. And I said, yeah, baby, but it's only a few. And now that I've established a number, a few, which is more than two, but less than four, okay, <laughs> she's counting. And now, and I see that, I see that moment of recognition in her when I say only a few. She's smart. She's very smart. So now I've got to make sure she only thinks I'm drinking a few. And the problem with trying to outsmart somebody who's already smarter than you and not drunk <laughs> is it doesn't work very well, John. Yeah, it's a handicap. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so she, 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 she got clued in, and she says, "You have to stop. You get drunk every day." I said, "All right, I can stop." She kind of got me in a corner, you know. She says, "Can you quit for thirty days?" I said, "Of course I can." Are you kidding me? <laughs> no problem. And so I quit for 30 days on resentments and Marlboros. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's how that's how I quit for 30 days. And um I convinced her after that 30 days and myself, we have to lie to ourselves first, right? I had to lie to myself first. So I built that lie back up again, right? I built that rationalization back up again. That, that rationalization that said, this time's going to be different. This time I can drink. This time I can manage it. This time it's going to be okay. This time I can keep this solution in my life and I'll be okay. Because I know it's not okay without it. I just went 30 days without it. And I, and I, and I, and I nearly, I nearly took my own life. Okay. I can't be on this planet sober for any meaningful length of time. So after that 30 days, it was clear I needed this alcohol back in my life again because life was unbearable without it. I said, yeah, okay. Well, you quit for 30 days. It was Thanksgiving, so it was actually around this time. And we were going to have my parents over for, for Thanksgiving, and it was my son's birthday. And I convinced her it was okay. We'd get some wine. For, for Thanksgiving and so yep go ahead so I got to go to the liquor store and I was a kid in the candy store John I was like yeah I'm gonna get so I got like four bottles of wine mind you there's like five people six people <laughs> gonna be there I got four bottles of wine I got cases of beer I mean I mean I'm all in baby you know uh, I filled the cart don't want to run out that's right that's right just to be sure but I promised myself, I really did. And that's the insanity of my disease. How, how could I get that much alcohol yet still promise myself I was only going to have one? Mm. I, don't, I don't know how that, I, I still can't just put those two together in my head, but that's what happened. And I really, really only wanted to have one. I did not want to get drunk. I, I wanted everything else besides that. I did not want to get drunk. And we proceed to have Thanksgiving and I proceed to drink and I can't stop. I can't stop to save my life. I can't stop. Just like any other time. And I'm drinking other people's half-drinking wine. Um, and I, I, I'm, 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 I, I am really drunk. And I almost cut my hand off slicing the turkey. <laughs> and um, my parents leave. My wife at the time looks at me. She says, what's, what's wrong with you? And my son looks at her and looks at me and says, uh, it's just dad again. It's just dad. He's just drunk again. And that, that really... That really hit home for me. That really, that, 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 I, 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 at that moment, on a day where I knew everything was on the line, everything, and I just didn't want to get drunk, but I just couldn't help myself. I couldn't help it. When my son said, it's just dad, he's just drunk again. And he had this look of, disappointment in his eyes. I don't think I've ever felt lower than that moment. And she said, you got to go to treatment. You just got to go. And I fought it for a little bit, but I realized that if I didn't go to treatment, I wouldn't be married. And so I went and I wasn't going to treatment to stop drinking. I wasn't going to treatment to stay sober forever. I was going to treatment so I could, so I didn't get divorced. 
But for some reason, and I can't explain it, when I was in that treatment counselor's office, I broke down. And I just surrendered to all of it. I was tired of fighting it. I was tired of feeling the way I was feeling. And I really didn't ever want to feel the way I felt at that moment ever again. Because it was undeniable that this disease was taking a toll on me that I couldn't sustain any longer. And so I admitted to this woman that I, and I was completely honest about all of it. And I'm crying like a baby. And she says, well, the good news is that we can help. And she said, what do you want to get out of this deal? And I looked at her, I said, I want to know why. I want to know why I am the way I am. And she kind of laughed and she says, yeah? Okay, well, let's say we figure it out, Charlie. Let's say it's because your mom died when you were 11. Or let's say it's because you always had big addict and alcoholic switches and they were bound to get tripped. Or let's say it's a combination of the two. If you figure out why you are the way you are, do you think you'll ever be able to drink safely again? No. If you figure out why you are the way you are, do you think you can use safely again? No. Great. Should we figure out how we get better instead of why you are the way you are? Yeah, <laughs> let's do that. And that was my first aha moment in recovery was focusing on the how, not the why. And the how became honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness in terms of willing to do whatever it took to get better. And the difference as I moved along in treatment and moved along in recovery was I had a recognition that talking about recovery never it's funny because I, you know, being a recovery podcaster, but talking about recovery in meetings without doing the action was meaningless, meant nothing, absolutely nothing. So I listened for the first time in my entire life, really listened to the people in those treatment centers, and then subsequently in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I remember going down to Alcoholics Anonymous this time, and it was like coming home. And it was like, finally, finally, I have found my tribe, people that really understand me, people that really, truly accept me. I've never been accepted anywhere. Mostly, I think, because I wasn't willing to be accepted but I was accepted in those rooms no matter what. And I started listening to their stories and I realized something very, very important. They felt like I felt. They did what I did. They drank like I drank. Okay? They struggled like I struggled. And they got better. And there was people in those rooms that had this, 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 this peace, this serenity, this joy. And I wanted it. I wanted that. So I was willing to do whatever it took to get it. And so I just stopped. I just stopped. And I just listened for a long time. I really didn't say a lot in the beginning on purpose. I really didn't try to pretend I knew anything because everything that I had done to that point got me to where I was. So clearly, I had a lot to learn. 
so I started listening. And these stories became very clear. Like these are, these stories need to get out of these rooms. And that was the impetus for my podcast. But more importantly, these stories changed me in, in a meaningful way. They gave me hope. And, and, and the people that had that, what I wanted, I started doing what they said they did. And there was these universal themes across the people that had what I wanted. They prayed every day and they, and they had sponsors and they stayed in the middle of recovery and they had sponsees. And, you know, there was these universal truths among all of these people about the actions that they took on a daily basis. And so I started taking those same actions in hopes that I could achieve what they achieved. And my sponsor was one of those people. And uh, that's the, that, was, that was the beginning of uh, a true transformation for me and where recovery really took hold. Okay, we'll be continuing our conversation with Charlie in just a moment. Just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the World Wide Web at SoberSpeak.com. There you'll find about 45 or so other episodes you can listen to for free. You can also find the donate button on our website, uh, which you can use only if the spirit moves you to do such. Please keep in mind this podcast is funded by you, the listener. Sober Speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. Okay, now back to Mr. Charlie. All right, so you're in. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what you just mentioned a moment ago. You you mentioned about your podcast and making sure that these stories from the rooms get out and uh, uh, how the stories in the room change you. Take me through that process of actually uh, beginning the process. Where did that, you know, obviously a seed was planted and then, but there takes work after that. Go through that for me. Yeah, no, great. You know, it was uh, this idea that, you know, I kept on hearing these stories and these stories were so powerful to me and they, and they were, and they were really tearing down these preconceived notions and they were really allowing me to start building this new life. And, and I was experiencing this change, this profound change in, in perception and, and in real feeling about uh, how um, uh, life was going to be for me. And I thought if they could do that for me, well, they can do that for other people. But not everybody's going to find their way down to a 12-step group in St. Paul, Minnesota, right? In the suburb of St. Paul, Minnesota. So I want to get this story out. And I also had this other thing this other notion in the back of my head that I had spent a long time uh, talking about me and it didn't get me better. And so I wanted to do this podcast so that I could share other people's stories as a way to you know, sort of right or wrong. I thought I had, you know, a, a transgression of sorts I, uh, I perpetrated. And so I started just looking at recovery podcasts. Were there any, you know, and there was, uh, I, I found. So I started listening to some other re recovery-based podcasts and started to get an understanding of what different formats of podcasts were and, you know, how I would go about it and, uh, and so it became very, it was very, very simple in the beginning. And it was, you know, hey, um, I love your story. I would love to get you on. And, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, two really uh, primary uh, tools were pretty important to me in the beginning, which was um, Audacity, which is the uh, editing tool and recording tool and, uh, uh, and a couple of microphones and a USB mixer, man. And so, um, uh, and, and, uh, and a little space down in the basement to, to get these stories out. Right. And I wanted to people just to share what it was like, what happened and what it was like, uh, what it's like now. 
and I wanted to draw out what I thought were parallels to, you know, universal truths that have sort of endured through the 12 steps and then, and, and, and then pieces of their story that were different. Um, that people could could also latch on to because I think our you know those stories those differences in our stories often are what keep us sick and keep us keep us out of the out, out of recovery and not each one of us is going to have the exact same uh, story but uh, the heart of it the the solution's the same regardless of how the disease manifested itself in consequences or no consequences or, you know, uh, those kinds of things, the outward um, manifestations of the disease can vary. But the solution is the same. Had you ever done a podcast before? Or had you, I no. mean, what, what made you, had you listened to podcasts? Were you? I would, no, none of that. No, but I, you know, I, I, I went to school for radio when, I was 19 and I've always had a fascination with radio. I've always loved radio. I've got a face for radio. So (laughs) all of that, you know, and I realized after I got out of radio broadcasting school that, you know, uh, the, the job offers were, were just awful, like $11,000 a year for overnight farm radio in nowheresville nebraska right uh there's there was no way i was chasing money at that time in my life there was no way on god's green earth that charlie was going to accept that kind of you know penance this you know no way no way uh, but I've always had a fascination for radio. So that was in the back of my head. And it sort of just, it, it was a God thing, man. It was the hi- my higher power that was speaking to me that said, you need to use your innate abilities to be able to share out uh, other people's stories and recovery, right? This is how you're going. This is one of the ways you're going to be able to, um, you know, uh, embody your spiritual truth. Do you remember your first one or two podcasts? I do. <laughs> I, do. <laughs> I do. Yes, I do. And it's funny. I remember them being very, I, first of all, I remember being long and I remember that the interview staying a long time, but I also remember um, them not really having a clear format in the beginning in terms of how I'm walking people through the story. Right. And you know, uh, so yeah, it took probably a good, I would say, 10 episodes before I really honed in on a formula that that worked, you know, that uh, brought out their story and, and allowed, uh, allowed me to be able to guide them in a way that I, I think is helpful for the listener. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I'm about a year into it now, not quite a year, and I'm just now getting my sea legs underneath me. Uh, you know, it, it takes a while to figure out what you're doing. But OK, so let's go back into the rooms of AA for you. So uh, obviously you've been sober for uh, you're coming up on your fourth birthday now, right? You are correct, my friend. That's great. So take us through. I mean, what are some highlights, lowlights, whatever you want to talk about during your four years in sobriety, the steps, whatever you want to cover there. Yeah, man. And so, you know, it's amazing. So I went into treatment trying not to get divorced, right? And I come home from that fateful treatment visit. And I come home to my wife at the time and I unburden myself to her on everything. I'm an alcoholic. I'm an addict. Um, and also, by the way, here's all the shit that I did that you don't know about. Ooh. For that. Um, I'm di- we're divorced now, John. <laughs> oh, I'm <just> because <laughs> she was not prepared for any of that. And I wasn't doing that for her. I was doing that for me. <laughs> but that was very important, and I don't regret it. And the reason I don't regret it is because that allowed me to really 
grab on to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 steps like I had never thought I had it in me. Because I no longer had, my wife laughed. She said, I'm out. I can't do this. I can't be married to an alcoholic. Her past was such that she had been abandoned by alcoholics all her life. Father, stepfather. And I was very angry at her in the beginning for, quote unquote, abandoning me in my time of need. But it forced me to get in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous because I had nothing else. And I got in the middle of it. And I remember when she told me she's leaving and she can't do this. She had said that before, but I knew this time she really, really meant it. And I remember breaking down and crying in front of my children and telling them that I failed them again. And that I'm sorry. That your life is going to change again. Your home is going to change again. And it's my fault. And they had suffered change because of me. Many times, homes, stepmoms. And my oldest son, who doesn't, he's he's not a wordsmith. He's not one that's going to, you know, wax poetically about anything. Comes up and I'm crying and they come up and they both hug me. And the older one says, Dad, I know you've made mistakes. But I wouldn't have you any other way. And it's everything I needed at that time. You know, it was, uh, and it still brings tears, tears to my eyes now. Um, and so I grabbed onto AA, I grabbed onto my sponsor, and I started just doing the actions. And the biggest thing, John, I can tell you, when I abandoned God at 11 years old, And I'm staring step two, straight in the face. And I've got nothing right now. I've got got to try something different. I know I do. I know I've got to try something different. I know I do. I wipe the slate clean on God completely. Completely. All preconceived notions, I threw it all away. Every single bit of it. My Catholic upbringing. All of it. I checked my hatred and I just thought I, 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 I was listening to Joe and Charlie a lot. And they kept saying, run an experiment, run an experiment, run an experiment. Just try it. Just try it. Your job is to focus on the results, not the process. And I kept hearing that. Your job is to focus on the results of the steps, not the process. Just do what the book says. Just do it. And judge the results. I came to believe that there was a power greater than myself, and I didn't know what it was. So I started praying to a God that I didn't believe in, or better yet, I started praying to a God that I had no understanding of every morning and every night. And in the meantime, I started working those steps. And I noticed something very, 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 very profound about six months in. That the world didn't change because I was praying to a God that I didn't understand. People didn't change because I started praying to a God that I didn't understand. I changed because I was praying to a God that I didn't understand. In that profound truth meant everything in my recovery. Everything. Because then I started to have faith in this God that I didn't understand because he was changing me. He was changing me. And I still can't figure that out, but I don't have to. I don't need to. 
It doesn't matter. It just works. When I pray in the morning and pray at night to a God that I still don't really understand, that God of my understanding changes me. And something in the big book that I read very early on, my sponsor was a very uh, old school and had me read through every chapter and highlight the things that 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 connected and and that I identified with. One of the things that just jumped out at me and hit me like a two by four to the forehead was our job is to be of maximum service, to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to the God of our understanding and the people around us on a daily basis. And at that time, I was searching for what God's will for me was. And that was it. That spoke to me. Your job, Charlie, is to be of maximum service to the God of your understanding and the people around you. And you know what? I found that universally applicable across all situations in my daily life. If I was having a problem and I was feeling funny in my gut, or in my chest, and I didn't know what to do in a situation, I would pray for what was the act that would be of maximum service. And the answer would come. Often that answer was to do nothing. Like not send that email to the coworker. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like, like, Like not tell your kid how you really feel about what he did in the bathroom the other day, you know, (laughs) like wait and do nothing for a while, you know? So a lot of it's like what I don't do, but, but, but to be of maximum service that was universally applicable across my life and became my guiding, my guiding principle, my guiding mantra. And still to this day is, Charlie, we're kind of coming to the, uh, believe it or not, time always flies, right? And I can tell you, right, we're both busy guys. You know, I, I have a, a schedule that, uh, you know, includes a, a family and it includes uh, a lot of my, my actual vocation. This is an avocation, right? Yes, I can relate. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, taking time out of the schedule to do that and edit these things and such, you know, I'm always wondering when I come into it, uh, if I need to be doing something else, but I can tell you, um, I have, uh, uh, I, I know for a fact, this is where I was supposed to be doing what I was supposed to be doing, talking with you today and hearing your story because it has, uh, um, impacted me. Um, I know it will impact the listeners, um, and I so, so much appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to do this. Now, tell people if they want to get, uh, I, like I said earlier, I'm going to put a, a link to it in my show notes, but tell people how to get in touch with your uh, podcast uh, just in case they, they want to reach out to you, and I know they will. Yeah, John, I appreciate it. You know, you're right. It takes a lot of time and effort. And there's those, you know, Monday nights when I'm editing a podcast when I could be doing other things. And, you know, I got two hours I know in front of me editing and uploading a podcast. And, you know, that's where the rubber meets the road, doesn't it? It does. It yeah. Does. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, that's the that's the dirty laundry behind it all. But um, but you know what? I'm never I'm never um, I'm never mad that I did it. I'm always grateful uh, and it's always a, uh, but it's a daily choice to be able to sacrifice and there is no service that's really worthwhile for me without true sacrifice. Mm. And there's some sacrifice in a podcast. There's no doubt. Uh, they can go to wait. Uh, 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 the way out podcast is wayoutcast.com, And that'll give you all the links. If you click on podcast, it'll give you all the links to hit, uh, hit the episodes, iTunes and Stitcher and all the major, uh, major, podcast platforms you can also email the show at share at wayoutcast.com um and uh, share s-h-a-r-e at wayoutcast.com that's right yep be happy for anybody's ears and it's just a just an absolute pleasure john uh to be on the show with you today thank you so much all right so i'm gonna go ahead and close it out uh once again if you want to go to our website uh and if you contact me i'll definitely make sure i'll get you in contact with charlie absolutely uh 
guarantee it. Uh, we're at www.soberspeak.com. Uh, we welcome your thoughts and feedback. We would love to hear from you. Um, what else do I have here? I'm going to just go ahead and read page 164 here and closes out. Page 164 in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the spirit and you will surely meet some of us, hopefully me and Charlie, as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Once again, Charlie, my friend, thank you for joining the podcast. John, thank you. Keep up the great work.